We have a lot of scripture reading today. Uh, Joshua chapter 6 verses 1 through 21. Also Revelation chapter 8 verses verse 6 through 9, 21 and 11, 15 through 19. You get all of that? Um, I'll, I'll say it again before we go there. Uh, you, you'll notice a pattern uh, in this sermon series through the book of Revelation that uh, I will give typically an overview sermon when we come to a new section of that whole section. The book is broken into many sections that are obviously discernible. Uh, and so I like to back up when we begin a new section and say, what is this all about before then moving slowly through that section? This is one of those sermons. Uh, there are no points to it. I do not mean to say that there's no point to this sermon at all, but there are no points in terms of one, two, three, and so on. It's a one-point sermon, I guess. The question is, what are the seals, the, the, the trumpets, rather, in the book of Revelation all about? So we're taking that uh, broad perspective on the text today, looking broadly at the, the trumpet cycle, uh, the seven trumpets uh, that are shown to us here in the book of Revelation. But we're going to read from the story of Joshua, from the book of Joshua, chapter 6, verse 1 through 22 first. You remember the story. It should be familiar to you. This is the conquest of Jericho. Remember that the people of Israel had been redeemed out of Egypt, passed through the Red Sea, wandered in that wilderness under Moses' leadership for a whole generation, for 40 years. Joshua was the only one left from that first generation. He was tasked with leading the people into the promised land. And as they began that conquest, they passed over the Jordan River. Their first obstacle was the city of Jericho. What were they to do? How was this land going to be given to them, we see quite clearly that it was going to be given to them, not by their own might, but by the power of God. Uh, but listen very carefully to the story here in Joshua chapter 6, verse 1, 1 through 21. It serves as the backdrop to the book of Revelation passage that we will eventually come to. Now Jericho, the city of Jericho, was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. Uh, none went out and none came in. The city was closed up because they knew that Israel was on the move. They were afraid of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a loud blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every one straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns, before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continuously. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them... Uh, devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold, every ve vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord's. 
So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Joshua 6, 1 through 21. Now let us go to Revelation chapter 8. We will read 8, 6 through 9, 21, and then jump to 11, 15 through 19. Lots of scripture reading, as I said. Please remain focused uh, through the text. It is important that we do so. Now, Revelation 8, 6. The seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Remember, they were introduced back up in 8, 2. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. When I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth as at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fall from heaven to the earth, and it was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of scorpion when it stings someone. And in the days people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like woman's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek it is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the seven, who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Would you turn now to Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. You notice that there is an interlude between what we have just read and what we are about to read, just as it was with the seal cycle. Revelation 11, verse 15, we come to the seventh trumpet. Now, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, 
And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. So far the reading of God's holy word. We pray the Lord would bless the preaching of it as well. Did you know that Donald Trump is actually mentioned in the book of Revelation? It's true, he is. Uh, the book of Revelation actually predicted his election a long, long time ago. And not only that, the book of Revelation predicts that the Trump family will be in power for seven generations For there are seven angels here in Revelation 8 who have seven trumps to blow. Donald is the first, but six more will surely follow. And then comes the end. I'm glad you laugh. You've been well trained. I'm joking, of course. But believe it or not, this view, the view that the trumpet cycle has to do with Donald Trump, is out there. Some believe it. Uh, One of you shared with me this last week an interaction you had with somebody who really believed this actually showed me the text of the conversation. It's out there. And now, while I'll admit that this particular interpretation, the one about Trump, is, is far more radical and ridiculous than others I have encountered, I do want you to notice that this interpretation is made possible by the futuristic and hyper literalistic interpretation of the book of Revelation that is so popular today. It grows out of the exact same soil as those interpretations that claim that the book of Revelation or other prophecies in Scripture have something specific to say about the four blood moons, Y2K, you remember that? The first Iraq war, the birthmark on Mikhail Gorbachev's head, 9-11, whatever it may be. Uh, it, It grows out of the exact same soil. Uh, the view that the book of Revelation says something specifically about Trump and, and, and these other views. The thing that all of these theories share in common is the presupposition, the erroneous one, that the book of Revelation is mainly about events yet in our future. And that each vision in the book of Revelation that John saw will be exhaustively, exhaustively fulfilled by one particular individual or historical event. It is amazing how difficult it is for people to escape that mindset. And and this is repetition, right? I'm redundant on this point, and I will be throughout the sermon series, because we came out of this way of thinking, most of us did, and it's so easy to slip right back into it. I think it's easy for us to slip right back into it as we continue the study of the book of Revelation and consider the trumpets. It's as if the futurist reads Revelation, and it begins to formulate a checklist under the heading prophecies to be fulfilled in the future. Then they grab the newspaper or watch the news and begin to look for opportunities to check things off of their list. And so they read the headline, Trump. And they say to themselves over and over again, Trump. Trump. Trumpets. Well, my goodness, I found it. I've cracked the code, right? I've solved the mystery. This is what the book of Revelation is talking about. Let's write a book, of course, is the thing to do. Let's make a YouTube video. That's next. And then you organize a conference. You begin to make money. And And I mock it because it's so ridiculous, and yet it's so prevalent today, this approach to the book of Revelation, this way of thinking concerning the the Bible, the Bible prophecy, it's all around us. It's all over the place. We're surrounded by it. And I think it's shameful. I think it brings shame to the name of Christ. Uh, to the Christian who is caught up in this way of thinking, I ask this question. When are you going to step outside of the theological echo chamber that you have cr- constructed for yourself? When are you going to be willing to critique your own theological system honestly and come to terms with the fact that the futurist system of interpretation has produced so many unfulfilled and embarrassing predictions that have been published for the whole world to see. It brings shame to the name of Christ. Just read some of the early works of the popular dispensational writers such as Hal Lindsey. 
Go back and read his early works and the predictions he made and many others like him. Go read the works and see how wrong they have been concerning their approach to the book of Revelation, matching this particular text with this historical event. And I think it is important for you, if this is your way of thinking about the book of Revelation, to understand that the modern popular dispensationalist preachers are doing the same thing with the Bible today. They read with one with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, and they try in vain to connect all of the dots, and they do so with such past passion, and they do so seeking to persuade, and they draw so many into their, their um, hermeneutical approach. I think they do great damage. They are operating according to the same interpretive principles as those who have gone before them, and I know that they will be proven wrong too. I'm sure of it, but by then they will have sold millions of books, Sadly, they'll publish millions of more, more even after their old predictions fall flat. And why are they able to do this? It's because people have an appetite for the sensational, and they also have very short memories. They have very short memories as well. Let me repeat a few things that have been said many times before in this sermon series, but are necessary to keep in mind as we transition from the seven seals to the seven trumpets. One, the book of Revelation is not organized what? You, you should know it. Chronologically. It is not a chronological description of how things will go in the last seven years of human history or anything like that. It cannot be. Just a plain reading of the text makes it impossible. Please notice here, as we begin to transition into the trumpet cycle, that the bodies in the realms that are affected when the trumpets are blown, beginning here in 8.6, were earlier said to be completely dissolved when the sixth seal was opened. Think of that for a moment. These same... Entities were said to have been finished, dissolved, earlier in the book of Revelation. Now they're back again, and they're said to be affected. This cannot be a chronological description of things. Look back at 6.12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, John says, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. Not a third of it, not a tenth of it, but the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky, not some of them, not a third or a tenth or anything like that, but the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Revelation 6, 12 through 14. We have here a symbolic description of the time when all of creation will be shaken to its core and dissolved, being eventually replaced with the new heavens and the new earth that are described to us later in the book of Revelation. That is where the sixth seal took us. But notice that here in the trumpet cycle, those same bodies come back into view and they are described as if they are whole. That is where we pick up in the trumpet cycle. When they are affected by the trumpet blasts, by these judgments that come upon them, they are said to be affected not in whole, but in part. So take, for example, just the fourth trumpet here in 8.12. Just we'll look at this. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and what happened when he did? A third of the sun. So there is the sun again, whole. But when the fourth trumpet is blown, a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. What are we to think of this except... My goodness, this is not chronological. We have now been taken back to a time prior to what the sixth seal described to us. We've we've gone back further than what was described to us when the sixth seal was broken. The book is not organized chronologically, but it repeats, it recapitulates, it goes back time and time again. Just notice how absurd it is to think that one section of the book of Revelation must follow another chronologically. It just doesn't, doesn't work. The seal cycle took us to the time of the end with the description of the dissolution of the heavens and the earth on the last day. But the trumpet cycle takes us back to a time before that last day and presents us with a universe that is intact. The judgments portrayed in the first six trumpets are not full and final, but partial and restrained. Only a third of the realms mentioned are said to be affected when the first four trumpets are blown. Trumpets five and six also portray partial and restrained judgments. But trumpet seven, which we did read today over in chapter 11, trumpet seven will take us to the end again, the book of Revelation recapitulates. It starts over many times, chronologically speaking. Do you, it's been said before, but it needs to be demonstrated here now that we are to this transition in the book. Two, 
Remember that the book of Revelation is not only about our future, but was for the people who received it in 90 AD. It was for them and for you and me. They too were blessed to read this book and to keep what is in it, for the times portrayed in this book were near to them. See Revelation 1.3 and also Revelation 22.7, which says that very thing. The time is near. What is portrayed was near to the, the people who were alive when John wrote. There is no reason to think that what is portrayed here in the first six trumpets has only to do with things yet future to us. Everything in the book from beginning to end points in another direction that what is portrayed in the book of Revelation has as much relevance for Christians living in 90 A.D., 900 A.D., and 1900 A.D. as it does for you and me to this very day. Three, remember that the book is not to be interpreted literally as if what John saw was video footage of particular historical events shown to him ahead of time. That's the best way I can think of to describe the mindset of the futurists. They, they, they think that when John saw the visions, it's as if he were sitting down in front of a television monitor and he was being shown news footage of events that are yet future to us, but, but ahead of time, you see. Uh, that, that, is their, that, that is their view, I think. Um, but that's not the case. The book is not to be interpreted in this way. It is not to be interpreted literally. Do you, do you want to be sure to misinterpret the book of Rome, uh, Revelation? Then read it as if it were Paul's letter to the Romans. Better yet, read it as if it were the book of Exodus or some other historical book which has as its objective a literal description of a particular historical event. Historical literature has that as its goal, doesn't it? A certain thing has happened, and so the author's job is to to say things that are true about it and to describe that event, that historical event. That is how historical narratives work. But the book of Revelation is not historical literature. If you want to misinterpret it, read it as though it were the book of Exodus or some other historical book which has as its objective a literal description of a particular historical event. Read Revelation as if it were a historical recounting of an event given to John ahead of time. That is the, the predominant approach today. Here, here John, what John has is history, right? And what he is writing is history, but he's writing it ahead of time before it ever Happens. Read Revelation uh, in that way. Ignore the genre. Forget about the fact that it is apocalyptic and prophetic literature. Ignore the similarity between Revelation and other prophetic passages in the Old Testament and the way that the New Testament interprets those, not literally but symbolically. Do, do all of that and you'll be sure to make this book into a monstrosity and bring shame to the name of Christ as you make false predictions that will never come true. Pick up, I don't know if you should spend money on this, but it, it might be helpful just to um, gain an understanding of, of other viewpoints. Pick up John Hagee's book, The Four Blood Moons, to see an example of this. As I understand it, that book has already been proven wrong. He's made predictions in it that have already been proven untrue. He, he I think, was foolish enough to, to get too close to the date setting of Harold Camping and his book. And yet he just continues to preach and, and hundreds and thousands of people come to hear him. But no one seems to be bothered. Well, they don't seem to be bothered by the fact that he's made false predictions. Um, understand that when I say we must not interpret Revelation literally, I do not mean to say that the book will have no real historical significance or fulfillment. It's so important for you to understand this. I am afraid that that is what the dispensationalists hear when they hear me saying, or us saying, do not interpret the book of Revelation literally. What we mean is this, the truths that come to us in this book, the truths that come to us in this book, truths that have been and will be fulfilled in human history, come to us in this book by way of symbolism. By way of symbolism. That's what we mean when we say it is not to be taken literally. But I'm afraid that what dispensationalists hear us saying is nothing in this book will ever come true in human history at all. It's not what we're saying. We affirm that the book of Revelation communicates truth to us. We believe that what it says has and will come to pass in human history. What we deny is that these visions shown to John are to be taken as if they were a literal description of particular events that are yet future to us, given to John ahead of time. This is how we've been interpreting the book all, of, all along. Uh, brothers and sisters, churches are not literally lampstands, are they? 
They are not literally lampstands. Jesus does not literally look like a lamb with seven horns, does he? A lamb that had been slain. And when God pours out his wrath on the last day, it will not literally come about because an angel scoops up literal coals from a literal fire and throws them down upon the earth. You you understand all of this, don't you? I think most most readers, even even those who err in the ways I've been criticizing you, they they understand that there's something symbolic. Jesus is not a seven-horned lamb that has been slain in heaven. He's Jesus in heaven. Most understand that. And yet... They tend to be so inconsistent in their interpretation of the book in other places. Indeed, these visions that we have encountered communicate truth to us. Christ is walking amongst his churches. Amen? That is true. He has been, he is today, and he will be walking amongst his churches. There at the beginning of the book of Revelation, symbolized by seven golden lampstands. And Christ is at the Father's right hand, isn't he? He is our risen and ascended Lord. He has been there since his ascension. He is there today and he will be there for all eternity because he has accomplished our redemption. He is the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. Amen. But that truth that had a real historical fulfillment and and, and is true today, that truth in the book of Revelation is communicated to us by way of symbol. To to, to press it as if it were literal would be to make ridiculous uh, theological to come to ridiculous theological conclusions. Indeed, God will judge and pour out his wrath on that last day. But it will not be because he scoops up coals from a literal fire and throws it on heaven. Uh, those, that's a symbolic description uh, of the judgment that is to come. How do the popular dispensationalists interpret this? the first four trumpets? You notice I continue to call them popular dispensationalists because there are scholarly dispensationalists who would be disgusted by all of this, honestly. I'm talking about the popular ones, the ones who write and sell lots and lots of books and who fill conference centers. How do they interpret the first four trumpets? Well, they probably interpret in many ways, but but I did pull a commentary written by Tim LaHaye, who's one of the authors of the immensely entertaining but terribly incorrect Left Behind series off my shelf to see. I I have some of those books left over on my shelf and I keep them around. Uh, It's important to read from them directly when studying a passage. In essence, his interpretation of the first four trumpets, if I were to summarize it very quickly, his interpretation of the first four trumpets is that there will come a day, listen to my words carefully, there will come a day in our future when lots of meteorites of various sizes and kinds will fall to the earth, igniting fires and poisoning rivers and the sea. Also, and I quote, day and night will seem to be reversed, he says, for there will be 16 hours of darkness and 8 hours of daylight when all of these prophecies contained within the trumpet cycle come true in our future. Stars will literally fall when the mountain that is burning is, you know, is cast into the sea, he says it must have been a really large meteorite that splashes into the ocean. You know, because after all, John was just sitting down watching the news footage ahead of time, and he couldn't describe it in any other way except to say the large mountain burning with fire. Well, those are the only words he could find. But really, it's a meteor. And this is how he explains it. I think it's quite interesting that he actually does the math. Remember that the, the sun... In the, the moon and the stars are diminished by how much in the trumpet cycle? One third. And so what LaHaye does is he does the math and says, well, in this time there will be 16 hours of darkness and 8 hours of, of daylight. Uh, this is the way he explains all this. It's, again, uh, he's being uh, true to his word and taking the text as literally as he can uh, when he does all of these things. I mentioned the Trump interpretation and also quote from LaHaye, uh, so that we might keep in mind just how different our approach to the book of Revelation is. I really want it to just be ingrained within you. We have a very different approach to the book of Revelation. When they read Revelation and seek to understand a particular passage, they read the text, and they look up from the text, and they look immediately to the newspaper and try to imagine how these things in the text will come to pass in the future. That's their approach. When we read Revelation and seek to understand a particular passage, we look at the passage itself and then we broaden our view and we look at the immediate context 
understanding that this book all fits together beautifully. There is a structure to the book, and, and one passage does lead to another. It does not flow chronologically, but one is connected to the other. Uh, and then from there we look beyond and we consider the New Testament itself. What does the New Testament have to say clearly about the time of the end? Jesus had some very specific things to say. Paul has some very specific and clear and straightforward things to say about the time of the end. We need to take that into consideration. But even beyond that, we need to look where? To the Old Testament, expecting to find the key to the symbolism of the book of Revelation there. Scripture is to be used to interpret Scripture. And from there then we look upon the world and see the many ways in which the truths communicated in this book have been, from the time of their writing up until this present day, fulfilled and will be on into the future. Of course we trust that those things yet to be fulfilled, all those things that will happen on that last day will be fulfilled accordingly. So what do the trumpets mean? What is the meaning of the trumpet cycle then? Well, the general message is this. And if there were a point to the sermon, I think this would probably be it today. You won't be able to write it down because it's too long. But the general message is this. What what is the trumpet cycle communicating uh, in general? Our God will indeed respond to the prayers of His people for vindication by pouring out partial And perpetual judgments upon the wicked while preserving his people as they live on this earth leading up to the eventual final judgment and the consummation of all things. You're saying, wait, Joe, you got your sermons mixed up. Isn't that what you've been saying about the seal cycle? You know, didn't you just kind of bring that over from that whole seal cycle thing? Yeah, similar message, right? The seal cycle, did it not take us through the church age from the time of Christ's first coming on to the very end of time and communicate to us something about the way that God is going to work in this world, preserving His people through trials and tribulations? And the same message is really given to us again in the trumpet cycle, a similar message at least. It has to do with how God is going to work in this world from the time of Christ's first coming on to the time of the end, when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of God, right? Did you hear it? When the seventh trumpet was blown, what was said there? Everything was brought to a consummation. Uh, Yes, they're, they're very similar messages, but they're not the same. The trumpets do bring a new perspective on the things that have already been described to us in the seal cycle. Trumpets one through six, we will see, symbolize these partial and perpetual judgments. Do you know what I mean by partial and perpetual? It's clearly noticed in the text. It, when the first six, four trumpets were, were, were blown, how much of each one of these realms was said to have been affected? Third, 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 third. Repetitive in the text. The, 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 the truth being communicated here is that, uh, yes, those, the, though these things have similarities to the final judgment, you know, fire falling from heaven, for example, uh, it, is not, it is not full and final yet, but these are... These are partial judgments. God's, God is going to restrain his judgments uh, until the time of the end. Trumpet 7 will again describe the end to us with the shouts of those in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The book of Revelation is repetitive. The seal cycle communicated a similar message. It too was out about the preservation of God's people and also the judgment of God's enemies through both partial and perpetual judgments, seals 1 through 4, remember, and also the full and final judgment, seals 6 and 7. Uh, the two cycles, the seal cycle and the trumpet cycle, have a similar message, but they are not identical. The trumpets have a different emphasis than the seals. They give a different perspective on things. The seals revealed that this age will be marked by general trials and tribulations. There will be wars and rumors of wars, plagues and famines. Indeed, the righteous and unrighteous will both be affected by these things. To the righteous, the trials and tribulations are but a refining fire. Did you hear that? It should be a reminder to you that for us, for those who have the seal of God placed upon them, the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the trials and tribulations are a refining fire. But to the unrighteous, those who belong not to God but to the evil one, these same trials and tribulations are forms of judgment. God's people will be preserved, but the enemies of God 
those not in Christ will be judged. The trumpet cycle, though it has a similar message to the seals, emphasizes that God is active in his judgments even now. Hear this. God is active in his judgments even now. He has the ability to judge even now with precision. Not only on that last day, but but now today he has the ability to judge with precision. He has the ability to judge a particular people while keeping others unharmed. And for himself, he will judge in a restrained way. That is to say, partially and perpetually. These judgments, partial and perpetual, serve as a kind of warning to the wicked that a greater judgment, full and final, will one day come. These partial, perpetual judgments have a way of bringing glory to his name and also encouraging the faith of his people as they live as exiles in this world. That is the general message that is being communicated to you here in the the, the trumpet cycle. And you say, well, where do you get all of this from exactly? Where does this come from? The text does not say that explicitly. No, it does not say it, but it symbolizes it. I get it from using the same method of interpretation that we have used from the beginning of our study of the book. Instead of looking to the newspaper and to the future in search of a literal fulfillment of the passage, as Lahey does, we're to look back to the Old Testament to understand the meaning of the symbolism that we find here. It is a symbolic book, apocalyptic prophetic literature. And this is what we've been doing all along, looking to the rest of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, to help us understand the things that were shown, the visions that were shown to John. When we read about the seven trumpets, there are two passages in the Old Testament that that should come immediately to mind. One we have already read. It is the story of the fall of Jericho. The other would be more difficult to read in this setting given its length, um, but you do know it well. Well, it's the story of the Exodus and the plagues that were poured out upon the Egyptians. As I read through the trumpet cycle, did you not hear Exodus language? appearing all over the place. Uh, You you should have noticed it, right? If you're familiar with those ten plagues that were poured out upon the Egyptians, forms of God's judgment upon them, right? Judgments that managed to all at once have an effect upon the wicked and ungodly and yet a totally different effect upon God's people whom he was redeeming. Judgments that were poured out upon the earth with precision, Whereas the wicked were affected by those things, God's people, his chosen people, were preserved, right? The the, the Exodus story is just peppered throughout uh, the, the, the blowing of the seven trumpets. We will give attention to the Exodus story in the weeks to come as we move through the trumpet cycle slowly, making those connections constantly. Do you hear, do you see the reference to this plague or to that as we go through the story? Today I will say just a few things about the importance of the Jericho story. Just a few things about the importance of the Jericho story, which we have already read. Concerning Jericho, remember that the people of Israel had been delivered from Egypt, being led out by the mighty hand of God under the leadership of Moses. It was the ten plagues, which we will come back to in the weeks to come, which were used to free them. The people of God passed through the Red Sea unharmed. But they did not immediately enter into the promised land because of their faithlessness. So they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses eventually died along with the rest of the faithless generation except Joshua. And then Joshua took the lead. He was charged with leading the next generation of the people into the promised land. They crossed the Jordan and the first obstacle in their way was the fortified city of Jericho. So we have a people, just think of it. We have a people redeemed. We have a people sojourning. We have a people who before them have a promised land that they hope to enter. And yet there is an obstacle in their way. Does that sound familiar, that kind of storyline? Does it sound familiar? And what I hope that you're seeing is, yes, this is familiar. It sounds like my testimony. Do you see the similarity? Redeemed. Sojourning. Looking forward to the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. Right? Sojourning in a world filled with wickedness, what is before us? The promised land, but what must happen first before we enter in? The end, the final judgment, right? 
What were these to do with this obstacle in their way, Jericho, this fortified city? These were men assembled for war, 144,000 numbered. Anyways, make the connection, I guess. I can't say it all. Um, You would expect them to besiege the city. But instead, God commanded that the priests take the lead. They were to take the Ark of the Covenant and walk around the city, you know, for every day for seven days. And just notice the repetition here. Seven priests were given seven trumpets to blow. Uh, For the first six days, they were to walk around the city one time while the priests sounded their trumpets. But on the seventh day, they were to walk around the city seven times. And after they walked around the city seven times, on the seventh day with the seven priests blowing their seven trumpets, the people were to shout and the city would be delivered into their hands. And this happened historically. It was a historical event. No one was spared in that city except the prostitute and her family who had aided the Hebrew spies days earlier. What what is this story all about, this historical story all about? Well, it shows that just as the people were rescued out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God, and just as they were sustained in the wilderness by God for those 40 years, so too would they take the land by the power of God. Their salvation, then beginning, middle, and end, was the work of who? Not them, but the Lord. And I need for you to understand this, that the, the story of the Exodus, the passing through the Red Sea, the wilderness wanderings, the conquest led by Joshua, which is the Hebrew name for Jesus, by the way, functions as a kind of picture or prototype of our salvation in Jesus the Christ. Do you, do you understand that this is how the, the, the story of Scripture works? You have all of these things happening in the Old Testament, real historical events, a real kind of salvation was earned when the people were delivered out of the Egypt, Egypt, for example, but, but it also functions as a, as a type, a, a prototype, a picture of a greater salvation yet to come. That is how the New Testament constantly interprets the Old. It's just all over the place in the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament makes these things so abundantly clear. These historical events were redemptive historical events. Have you ever heard me use that phrase before? Redemptive historical I know you have. I say it often, and I rarely stop to define what I mean by it. But what I mean by it is this. Historical, yes. In other words, it really happened. But redemptive historical, meaning this, these events were pregnant with redemptive significance. In other words, this historical event was not just a historical event, but embedded within it a kind of prophetic significance. Right? Joshua led the people into the promised land, uh, not because that was the end of the story, but in part as a kind, of, a kind of picture of the greater salvation that would be accomplished by Jesus the Christ, Yeshua, right? By Jesus the Christ. You have been redeemed, not merely from Egypt, but from the power of sin and death. You have passed through not merely the waters of the Red Sea, but the waters of divine judgment, which they symbolized. You are wandering as sojourners in a dry and arid place. This is not your home. But you will one day enter into the land that has been promised to you, not some mere sliver of land in Palestine, but the new heavens and the new earth, the same place that Abraham himself saw with eyes of faith, as the book of Hebrews makes abundantly clear. And who will lead you there? Not Joshua, the son of Nun, but Joshua, or Jesus, the Christ, our Savior. Therefore, the story of the fall of Jericho, though certainly real and historical, functions typologically in the Bible. It symbolizes what? What do you think it symbolizes then? When those walls fell flat, and the people of God rushed in and devoted everything in that city... To destruction. What do you think that is a symbol of? The final judgment. When the wrath of God is poured out upon the earth. It is a picture. A prototype. Of that last day. And when did it happen historically? It happened when the seventh of seven trumpets were blown. On the seventh day. The people then shouted with a loud shout and entered in. But then what were the other trumpets for? What about the the six trumpets before that, that were blown on the six days before that by those seven priests? Were they not warnings to to the ungodly that, that judgment is coming? Judgment is going to come upon you. 
Were they not also a demonstration of God's sovereignty over the, holy, the, the, whole, the whole episode for the people of God to increase their faith? I mean, if they were to enter in on their own strength, wouldn't you expect them to just arm themselves for battle and go straight ahead and to besiege that city? But they are told, no, let the priests take the lead. Put the Ark of the Covenant in front of you and walk around this city for seven days, which is the last thing any military um, would expect to do, showing that it is the power of God here, that he is sovereign. Over. And these trumpets are blown as a warning to the ungodly and also as a kind of comfort to the people of God that their God is with them. With that in mind then, what are we to think about the trumpet cycle in the book of Revelation? Does it not function the same way? Do we not see that when we consider these seven trumpets in the book of Revelation that the first six function as kind of warning signs to the world around us that judgment will one day come and when the seventh trumpet is eventually blown what we see is that the full and final judgment does come the end is brought in the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever the trumpets warn of impending doom that is what they do They are restrained judgments that are poured out upon the earth, but they function to warn of a greater judgment yet to come. They signal the coming of the Lord. This is true throughout the pages of Holy Scripture. It was true in the Jericho event. The sounding of the trumpets on the first six days warned the inhabitants of the city of impending doom when the seven trumpets were sounded by the seven priests on the seventh day after the sevenfold circumnavigation of the city. The doom suddenly came upon the city. The city of Jericho became the city of the Lord and of all of his covenant people. That is what will happen in human history. That is what will happen in human history. It will not just happen to the city of Jericho, but to all of the earth, all the kingdoms of this earth will experience this. You will not hear with your natural ears trumpets, will you? No, that is not what we're saying. Not not in regard to the trumpet cycle here. Uh, that, That is not what we're saying. We do not hear this with our natural ears. But we see it all around us, don't we? Look around you and, and, and don't, you, don't you encounter warnings of various kinds that things are not as they should be in this world, right? Uh, indications of our, of our sin all around. I mean, you open up the newspaper. I think it is good to read the newspaper, mind you. Uh, and, and what do you see? You, you see all sorts of horrifying things happening through, throughout this world, and what sort of effect should that have upon the, the, the believer? Should it not be this? My goodness, we are sinful. And are, not, are these not prototypes? Are these not um, little itty-bitty, miny, uh, miny, itty-bitty uh, miniature uh, judgments poured out upon this unholy and unrighteous uh, place? Should they not warn us? Should they not function as trumpet blasts warning us that there is greater judgment uh, yet to come. The one who knows Christ hears these trumpet blasts with ears of faith and understands their significance. The one not in Christ ignores the warning, though. Those in Christ are like the Israelites who marched around the city. They knew what the first trumpet blasts on the first six days were for. They were warning signs. But I would bet that many within the town of Jericho thought little of the priests with their ram's horns. You know, They probably thought it was pretty silly, maybe even something to mock. And they persisted in their unbelief, didn't they? Just as many do today, even as they encounter difficulties in this world. I do wish that the unbeliever would hear the warning that uh, sounds all around them. Uh, I have oftentimes preached to those grieving the loss of a loved one at a memorial service, for example. You know, saying to to those in, in attendance, don't you see that this life will not go on forever. Don't you see it right here before you as you mourn the loss of your loved one? Don't you see that death will touch us all and that we will stand before God, the God who made us one day? You know, the, the trumpet blast is so loud and clear to me in moments like that. You know, you would think that they would be shaken to the core and come to their senses and turn from their sin and prepare to meet their God on that last day, having encountered such a a tragedy and such a crisis in their life, but it is actually very rare that I see someone awake from their sleepy slumber. 
They just don't hear it. They don't hear it. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I I do wish that you would grow accustomed uh, to thinking in this way. I wish that when you read of this catastrophe or that catastrophe, uh, that you would learn to see them for what they are. Trumpet blasts, forms of judgment in miniature, which warn of impending doom. Also, I wish that you would learn to give thanks to God that in his mercy he has restrained his judgments, leaving time for his elect to be brought to repentance and faith and then gathered to himself. Remember Jesus' words, Mark 13, 5 through 8. Jesus said to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of what? Birth pains. Birth pains. How do birth pains function? You women know better than we men how they function. But do they not warn that something significant is about to happen? That a great labor is about to come upon you? And that is what Jesus says most clearly in his, his teachings. That when, when, when we see all of these things, the wars and the rumors of wars and the famines and the earthquakes, what, what should come to mind for the believer except this? They are like birth pains that warn of a great trial that will one day come upon the whole world. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father in heaven, give us eyes of faith. Give us ears of faith. Lord, help us to perceive in the world around us um, these very things that have been discussed this morning. uh, That we would recognize, Lord, our sin, the fact that you have been merciful and gracious to us. You have been patient. Lord, help us to rejoice in these things as your people. We do pray for those who do not know Christ that you would awaken them from their sleepy slumber. That they, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would come to their senses and see, uh, Lord, all of these indications... Lord, that point forward to the coming final judgment and that they would turn to Christ and trust in Him and Him alone. Lord, help us with these things. Help us, especially as we live in this world marked by so much difficulty, so much discouragement, Lord. Give us greater faith so that we might rejoice in You and count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds. Give us greater faith, Lord, so that we might not just hang in there through trial and tribulation through difficulty, but thrive in Christ Jesus because our hope is in Him. These things we pray in His name and all of God's people say, Amen.